Jackson gets mugged, Ginny joins the crazies, and Alaska loses a not-so-jolly and not-so-green giant. All on the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 385 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. We have long become accustomed to Supreme Court nominees at their confirmation hearings doing everything they could to evade or deflect questions about how they might rule. This has been the model ever since Robert Bork, President Reagan's controversial nominee, gave full and revealing answers during his 1987 hearings. His frank answers may have delighted conservative activists, but they didn't fare well with the senators who were deciding his fate. Bork was defeated, 58-42, to which sent a signal to future nominees, from the right and the left, how to handle the hearings. Say as little as possible. But the senators grilling Ketanji Brown-Jackson didn't even pretend to ask questions about the judge's philosophy. It was all about appealing to the base. A lot of stuff out of the QAnon playbook. Dog whistle-like questions about crime and permissiveness directed at a black woman. Questions about sexual predators and pornography, about the definition of the word woman. Tantrums about how Brett Kavanaugh was treated during his own confirmation hearings. Remember this? Look, (laughs) I like beer, okay? I like beer. Boys like beer. Girls like beer. I like beer. I like beer. Okay, that may have been a Saturday Night Live parody. I'm not really sure. But the point is, Republicans spent more time asking nasty and hostile questions, doing everything they could to appeal to their base and make points for November. And speaking of Kavanaugh, Senator Lindsey Graham seemed to be obsessed about what happened during his hearings in 2018. I don't understand the context of the question. Well, let me, did you watch the Kavanaugh hearings? No, sir. Are you familiar with what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings? Generally. Senator, your time is... Well, please, Mr. Chairman. Uh, So, to be honest, it's a minute and 47 seconds. She filibustered every question I had, and she has a right to give an answer. But I'm trying to make a point in 20 minutes. You were here for Kavanaugh. If she's confused about what happened, some people on the other side had an accusation against Judge Kavanaugh that during high school, uh, he sexually assaulted somebody. And the rest is history. That was known to the people on the other side and never revealed during the meetings they had with Judge Kavanaugh. It was literally ambushed. He was ambushed. How would you feel if we did that to you? Senator, I've appreciated the kindness that each of you has shown me to see me in your offices, to talk with me about but, my approach. But, but my question is, what if it, during our 15-minute exchange, it was very pleasant. You're a very nice person. You have a lot to be proud of. I would never do that to you. If I had some information 
that's sketchy at best, that somehow you've done something wrong, I promise you, just from human decency, I would share it with you. I would not disclose it at the last minute of the last day of the hearing, and I've already given it to a newspaper so the whole country can read about it before you ever said a word. Senator, she's had nothing to do with the cause. No, but I'm asking her about how how she may feel about what y'all did. We have Senator, order. your time has expired, and I'm going to give her an opportunity to finally complete an answer. So, can, if I could just address, answer the question. It, 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 Senator, I don't have any comment on what procedures took place in this body regarding What you think Justice about the Kavanaugh here? Kavanaugh. What I'd like finish? to answer is your... Let the record show that Graham voted to confirm Jackson for the appellate court only last year. There was a sense of history being made in 1967 after Thurgood Marshall became the first African-American on the Supreme Court. And once again in 1981, when Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed as the first woman to serve on the court by a vote of 99 to nothing. There's history staring us in the face right here, right now, the nomination of the first African-American woman for the U.S. Supreme Court. But you'd never know it from what you heard at the hearings. Senator Ben Sass, a Nebraska Republican, said Jackson, quote, is an extraordinary person with an extraordinary American story. He added that she has impeccable credentials and a deep knowledge of the law, but he's voting no. She would be lucky if she gets three Republican votes. After a brutally mean-spirited three days, there's no history to celebrate here. Maybe it's time for a shower. You're gonna lose that girl. Yeah, she said she's gonna lose that girl. You're gonna lose that girl. Yeah, she said she's gonna lose that girl. You're gonna lose that girl. Yeah, she said she's gonna lose that girl. Don Young, an Alaska Republican who was the most senior member of Congress and the longest serving Republican in the history of the House, died Saturday at the age of 88. First elected in a special contest in 1973, Young served in Congress for 49 of the state's 63 years of existence. He was a larger-than-life figure who was responsible for billions of dollars in pork barrel projects for Alaska. There was also a long history of ethics accusations. But while his hold on the electorate was not as strong as earlier in his career, he managed to win a 25th term in 2020 with 54% of the vote. Liz Ruskin is a reporter with Alaska Public Media and reports out of Washington and Anchorage, where she is now. Liz, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, Don Young has been in Congress for most of your life, <laughs> most of my life. Can you describe both who Don Young was and, and what life is going to be like without him? He was, you know, he, he had this larger than life persona he was um he could be uh crass and crude he uh acted often as though he were in an Alaska roadhouse instead of the US House of Representatives and some of it i think was cultivated and some of it was just who he was um he uh you know he had 
a lot of seniority, and he remembered a time when um, Republicans and Democrats worked together a little more, and that made him kind of more effective than a lot of the um, others in his caucus. I mean, he knew how to work with uh, across the aisle to get stuff done. So, And over the decades, he managed to get a lot of stuff done. When you picked up the phone a few minutes ago and I said, Don Young is gone, and you said, like, you know, people are just gasping in Alaska, what's the... What's the reaction like? Yeah, I know. I mean, he was 88 years old, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but people are really just shocked. I think he even once said this himself. He said that half the state loves him and half the state doesn't love him, but uh, but he but he also certainly deeply loved Alaska. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He uh, had an image of Alaska that was kind of old-fashioned, but it also is the myth of an Alaska that Alaskans themselves like to hold. So it kind of uh, suited him and suited the state. You know, he cultivated this um, this kind of uh, homesteader, trapper, riverboat captain. He had a lot of occupations, and he would wear that whichever hat suited him. You know, I used to be a school teacher, so I know. And then he'd say, "Well, you know, I'm the only riverboat captain in Congress, right?" You know, yeah. <laughs> there was no, there was hardly an occupation. He was the mayor of a small town. He would, you know, it, it, he would trot those things out at uh, opportune moments. Well, for all the occupations you say he was, uh, he said he said he was. Um, one of them was not much of an environmentalist. Oh uh, no, he just thought that the resources were there to be um, extracted, and he was just furious that anyone would say otherwise. There was one moment uh, when Hawaii Congresswoman Colleen Halabusa tried to put in the record letters from environmentalists objecting to the building of a road through a wildlife refuge, and Young objected, saying that not building the road is killing people. Let me play that tape. I'd like to ask unanimous consent, Mr. Chair, to enter this letter from the National Wildlife Refuge Association into the record. It is signed by the Friends of Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge and the Friends of Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, along with 100 other groups from around the country, including Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge in Hawaii. Without objection. I object. Oh, there is objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and if people want to know why in the audience, we've always had a good working relationship with Hawaii. We talk about things together. We don't talk about things that I represent or that she represents. That's the reason I objected. And I, Mr. Chairman, I will not issue my, my written statement this time only to say that when I watch lives die of my American natives, because someone has an ecosystem that won't be affected by this road at all, is wrong. The idea that these are gonna, the area is going to be disturbed is nonsense. It's pure BS that comes out of these interest groups, these environmental groups. There's 150 miles of road on this refuge already. There are 11 lodges there that hunt birds on this refuge. We're talking about an 11-mile road is nowhere as near the lagoons or the eelgrass. It's going to save lives. Now, the day that this Congress will take and love a goose that's not going to be harmed over a human life, shame on you. I'm not going to tolerate that. If you want to kill people, go out and kill them. But don't do it because you're being stupid. 
the idea that any American had any stake in Alaska just infuriated him. He felt that Alaskans owned Alaska and all these federal lands in Alaska were also Alaska and that the federal government and Americans who didn't live in Alaska should have no say in what happened in federal refuges and federal wilderness areas, um, national parks. He just felt like that was an invalid assumption that other Americans had could influence what happens in Alaska. But he also, I mean, of course he was a conservative, but he also could break with his party. He was one of just 13 Republicans to vote for President Biden's infrastructure bill. Right. And that was in keeping with the way he used to operate. You know, he was the king of earmarks uh, on the House side. Um, he spent most of his career, you know, kind of trying to keep up with um, Ted Stevens, who, uh, you know, longtime senator from Alaska, who got a lot of earmarks for Alaska. And Don Young really wanted to do that. Uh, and then when he became chairman of the Transportation Committee, that was his opportunity. And he just loaded his, his highway bill with all this Alaska money. So when another infrastructure bill comes along, like, you know, Biden's uh, infrastructure bill, he thought, great, yeah, has a lot for Alaska, let's do it. But, you know, meantime, his caucus had moved towards just saying no to everything. And uh, he didn't he didn't subscribe to that. He thought if, you know, Republicans and Democrats could agree on a bunch of home state projects, great, let's pass them. Yeah, that sounds like a Congress that's far along into the past, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he he was a radical conservative for, and, and just a, a, a bombastic character um, for all those years. But then more bombastic characters came in later in his career, and he began to seem more moderate and more bipartisan. Well, there's also a difference between bombastic and crazy. And you know, he may be bombastic, but he was not, he did not have some of the characteristics of some of the more outlandish characters in the, in his caucus now, uh, these days. Right. He was kind of savvier. I mean, he wasn't there just to rally his base. He was there to actually get stuff done. He wanted to go back home and see big projects that he had a hand in creating and that he could, you know, frankly, take credit for. And um, I'm not sure that the new generation of, you know, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greens and, you know, they're not they're not particularly interested in going back to their district and saying, oh, yeah, this uh, highway, I, I, br- I brought this to you. <laughs> That's not how they get elected. They don't get elected by um, bringing project, bringing home the bacon. They get elected by having the slogans that appeal to their base. There were also ethics questions throughout his career. How did Alaskans respond to that? Well, I think a lot of people were embarrassed by, I would say more so the um, the episodes where he would insult officials and uh, do kind of crazy antics. Um, I read somewhere that he would sit in the back of the House chamber and heckle <laughs> of uh, um, members of Congress when they were taking too long to vote. I mean, it's well, just a that, thought of that. He was well known for that. You could hear him in the hallways. <laughs> I, my, 
I work out of the house radio TV gallery, which is upstairs from the house. And sometimes when I left my office suite, I could hear him saying, vote, vote, vote. <laughs> he was kind of beloved for that because usually by the time he was heckling, mostly just bellowing, get on with it. Um, everyone else was impatient, too, and wanted to get to the vote. But there was also, there was also financial questions, financial you know, accusations of campaign funds and improper gifts and things like that. Yeah, he like a lot of these long-term um, members of Congress and senators, he had a whole cadre of former staffers who went on to become lobbyists, and they were and you know they were making a lot of money off their relationship with him, and they had a lot of money, and they treated him to trips. He was really into hunting. They would take him hunting. There was. Um, you know, gifts. I think in his mind, it didn't seem like um, corruption. It just felt like he was with his friends and they were buying him nice things because these are all such trivial um, matters uh, that who cares if someone buys me an expensive pair of boots and the boots actually cost $300. And it, he didn't have a lot of regard for the um, rules, for ethics rules, and he just didn't, he didn't see it as corruption, but, but the rules were the rules, and he violated them, and they didn't look good when they were put in an ethics committee report. He has said in the past that he would stay in office until voters or God decided otherwise. Now, God ultimately made the decision, but you think he would have won another term in November? Absolutely. Yeah. I do. Um, he had somebody, oh, yeah, he had somebody running to his right who was sort of um, attacking him for, for instance, his office poly, policy of requiring COVID vaccines. Oh, we can't have that. And, no, can't have that. And um, Don Young got COVID and then became um, an advocate for uh, masks, right? He was a total advocate for vaccines. Yeah. But anyway, the person who was running to his right was Nick Baggage III, um, the grandson of the congressman before Don Young, who um, famously you, disappeared on I want to talk. I, I want to talk about that in a bit. But wait a second, Nick Baggage III ran to Don Young's right. Yeah, the Baggage family is large and varied, and Nick Baggage III is a Republican and um, saw it in his interest to um, say Don Young wasn't conservative enough and attack him for things like supporting the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. What's the process for replacing him in in a special election? Well, it's interesting. We're we're figuring that out now. Um, I think the governor calls a special election, um, which would be in May or June, and then the I mean the primary would be in May or, or June, and then there would be the general in August, which could take place on our regular primary day. We've got a confusing set of elections ahead of us. Also. Alaska is going to have its first um, ranked choice voting election this year, and um, it looks like the special election for Don Young's seat will be the first one that we do with this um, new process, and it's it, yeah, it's kind of blowing people's minds. You know, I, I, you mentioned this, uh, you alluded to this a few seconds ago, but 
I can't help but think that Young came to Congress in his special election, but that was in a most tragic way. And after he first lost to a deceased candidate, can you can you talk a little bit about that? You know, so the election of 1972, in October, Congressman Begich's plane went down with Hale Boggs, who was the House Majority Leader, who was in Alaska, campaigning with him. Good evening. Search planes and fishing boats haunted along the Alaska coast today for a small plane that disappeared yesterday on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau. That was Walter Cronkite of CBS News. On that plane, four men, one of them the Democratic leader of the House of Representatives, Hale Boggs of Louisiana. The 58-year-old Louisiana congressman was in Alaska campaigning for the re-election of that state's only congressman, Nick Begich. Boggs spoke Sunday night at a dinner for Begich at an Anchorage hotel before leaving with him and others yesterday morning on the flight to Juneau. It was a warm reception. But then the next day, trouble. Somewhere along the 550-mile planned flight path, the plane disappeared in a rainstorm. And the uh, election was held, you know, the, the ballot was already set. Um, and this is three weeks before the election. Right. And um, Begich won re-election, even though he was soon to be pronounced dead. And, you know, of course, the plane was never found. And, you know, Don Young said, it was always said, you know, Don Young lost to a dead man. And he talked about that. And he said, yeah, of course, that hurt his feelings. And he had to live that down for decades. People always said he lost to a dead man. In March, they had a special election, which Don Young won. In 73. And that's how he won the seat. Anyway, it, it was a shadow over him for you know, a lot of his career, and yeah, he didn't like it. Don Young, he's in Congress nearly a half century. He's he's gone. It's it's almost hard to grasp. It really is. And uh, let me just reiterate for folks who can't picture this, but Alaska has only one House member, and he has been that House member for forty nine years. So most uh, most Alaskans have never known any other House member. He's the only House member we've known. You know, he um, he was outrageous, and he would um, attack people verbally and sometimes physically in the halls of Congress, and he would say that I, I have heard him say that well. Um, you know, there are 435 members of Congress, and I, everyone knows who I am. No one is going to forget the um, congressman from Alaska. I have this bigger-than-life personality, and people know that, and it I use it to benefit Alaska. I've heard him say that. I'm not sure that's true. I think he couldn't help himself. He just was that um, that character. But I, I found it interesting that he had found a justification for it that he thought it really helped Alaska because people people didn't cross him uh, because he had this famed temper. Liz Ruskin is a reporter with Alaska Public Media. Liz, thanks so much for being on the program. Sure, thank you. And uh, now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain 
I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my way With the Senate deadlock between 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, there is little room for error in this year's elections. There may be 35 seats up for grabs in November, but there are maybe 10 at most that are in play. One of those most closely watched is Ohio, where Republican Rob Portman is retiring after two terms. It's one of the few states where Democrats have a shot at picking up a seat, though Ohio has been moving steadily to the right in recent years, with Donald Trump carrying it twice by eight points each time. The favorite for the Democratic nomination is 10-term Congressman Tim Ryan, a labor-friendly centrist who is facing a primary challenge from his left in the form of Morgan Harper, an African-American community organizer and consumer activist. More about the Democrats at some other time. There is no shortage of Republicans who want the seat, and the name of the game seems to be who can show their fealty to Trump more than anyone else. There's J.D. Vance, a venture capitalist. He wrote a best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, in 2016 and memorably called Trump reprehensible. In 2021, shortly before he announced his candidacy, he apologized to Trump and took back everything he said about him. But some, like the Club for Growth, won't let voters forget that. J.D. Vance, in his own words. I'm a never-Trump guy. I never liked him. As somebody who doesn't like Trump, I might have to hold my nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. I didn't vote for Trump because I can't stomach Trump. I think that he's noxious, him being really outrageous and offensive. On Twitter, Vance called Trump, quote, reprehensible, an idiot, and Vance loves Mitt Romney. I'm a never-Trump guy. That's the real J.D. Vance. Club for Growth Action is responsible for the content of this ad. Jane Timken is the former chair of the Ohio GOP. While she initially supported Ohio's John Kasich for president in 2016, she quickly rallied behind Trump and has attacked the former governor for his role in the Never Trump movement. She has been endorsed by retiring Senator Portman. Josh Mandel is probably the best known of the candidates. He's a former two-term state treasurer and ran for the Senate twice before, first as his party's nominee against Sherrod Brown in 2012, and then running again in 2018, but dropped out early. Once seen as a moderate, he now takes far-right positions on most issues and backs Trump without exception. Mike Gibbons is a multimillionaire financier and political outsider who has been comparing his rise to that of Trump's. He's already spent $12 million on his campaign, more than any other candidate. And Matt Dolan is a state senator and son of the owner of Cleveland's Major League Baseball team. He has, for the most part, tried to ignore Trump and refuses to participate in the fake theories about a stolen election. For his part, Trump said he would never endorse him, citing the so-called politically correct decision to change the name of the Cleveland Indians to the Guardians. That's the lineup. All but Dolan are strong Trump supporters. But Trump was not the reason why a near fistfight broke out Friday during a debate. People had to separate Mandel from Gibbons. We don't see enough fighting on the news these days, right? 
Anyway, here with the blow-by-blow commentary is Howard Wilkinson, the senior political analyst at WVXU in Cincinnati and a longtime pal. Howard, it's great to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you, Ken. So let's paint the picture here. Republicans are debating. It's Gibbons' turn to talk. He's standing and making the case while everyone is sitting. He's disparaging Mandel's record. Then Mandel stands up right in front of Gibbons' face and touts his own record in Iraq. Let me play the tape. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Okay, Howard, that's, that's, the, that's stuff I made up. But it really looked like punches were about to get thrown. I mean, they had to be separated. Yeah, they did. And uh, it was very strange. Uh, what Gibbons had said had to do with uh, uh, saying that, that uh, Josh Mandel had never had any experience in the private sector. He'd never worked in the private sector. Mandel took great umbrage at this. He got all wound up. He jumped up, and he, and he was literally in his face. You may not understand this because you've I never been in the private No, you don't. I do. You've never been in the I private sector in your life. All right, gentlemen. I've worked, sir. Gosh, squat. Two chores in Iraq. Don't, don't tell me I haven't worked. Don't, don't tell me I haven't worked. You, you don't know squat. It's okay, right? You don't know squat. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Back off, buddy. You're gonna you back off. Oh, my God. Oh, Never. That'll happen. Sit down. Never. Watch. Yeah. Watch. We'll swear it away with the wrong dude. No, no. Guys. You're dealing with the wrong guy. You watch what happens. You watch what happens. Howard, did it, did it look like Mandel was going to throw a punch? Uh, it, it seemed possible, yes. I mean, if I were Gibbons, I would be standing there waiting for one, yes. Do you think that the fact that they're leading in the polls has anything to do with the intensity of the fight? Yeah, it, it, I, I know it did. I mean, it certainly did. You know, he, Mandel was bound and determined to get up and make this, you know, basically yelling at Gibbons, saying that I have worked for a living. I did two tours of duty in Iraq. He's a former Marine, and he likes to talk about it. And uh, I think this. I think he had planned this whole thing out because uh, he knew it was coming. Because Gibbons had used this line before about, uh, you know, you've never worked in the private sector. Well, as Gibbons was trying to explain, the, the military is, is great service and hard work, especially if you're in a war zone, but it is not the private sector. Okay, well, here, here's when the, the real political junkie geek comes out of me. When I was watching that, I was immediately, and maybe you were too, I was immediately brought back to Ohio in 1974. Yep. Yeah, let, right. let me explain this a little bit. Howard Metzabaum had just been appointed to the Senate, and John Glenn, who Metzabaum had defeated in the primary years before, was running again. And they were debating. Metzabaum had been saying that Glenn had no business experience, that he had never met a payroll, and that was too much for Glenn. And, and what he came back with is one of the most memorable campaign moments in American history. I spent 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. I was through two wars. I flew 149 missions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my checkbook, it was my life that was on the line. You know, with me as I went the other day out to a veteran's hospital, look those men out there with their mangled bodies in the eye and tell them they didn't hold a job. You go with me to any gold star mother and you look her in the eye and you tell her that her son did not hold a job. 
We stand in Arlington National Cemetery where I have more friends than I like to remember, and you think about this nation, and you tell me that those people didn't have a job. I tell you, Howard Metzenbaum, you should be on your knees every day of your life thanking God that there were some men, some men, who held a job. And they required a dedication to purpose and a love of country and a dedication to duty that was more important than life itself. And their self-sacrifice is what has made this nation possible. I've held a job, Howard. Yeah, I mean, that's immediately what I thought of, too, Ken. I mean, I, I uh, remember that vividly. I was just getting started as a reporter covering politics when that happened. Now, the difference between what John Glenn did and what Josh Mandel did, and I think that Mandel... Somebody had told him about what Glenn had done back in 1974. But the difference was John Glenn stood there and very sternly spoke to Metzenbaum about his experience. That, you know, I was a fighter pilot in World War II in Korea. I was uh, an astronaut, and that was work. I have served my country. He didn't threaten him. He didn't get in his face. He just very in a very dignified way, made it clear. And he stripped the bark off of Howard Metzenbaum. Howard Metzenbaum was done after that. Mandel was just totally out of control. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think think either of us can really put Josh Mandel and John Glenn in the same sentence. No, absolutely not, except that they were both Marines. Now, so what's going on with the race now? What I've been reading all along is that Mandel had long held the lead in the polls, but but I see he's slipping and, and Gibbons is coming on. Is that accurate? Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, there was the Emerson College poll that now that, uh, has uh, Gibbons in a lead of about 22% to 15%, and uh, the rest of them, you know, uh, in single digits. And it's, you know, but there are a whole lot of people still undecided, Republican voters uh, in Ohio still undecided about this thing. And it's still playing out. I think it's going to keep, it's going to be a very volatile race. And I think you're going to see different front runners at different times. It's almost like musical chairs. It's whoever's sitting in the, in the last chair when the music stops is, is going to win this one. In your opinion, did the last Friday's debate change the dynamic in any way? Uh, I don't know. I think it, ha- it it might have because the reaction in the room, this was not a widespread thing. And then it started you know, spreading all over uh, social media because there was some, somebody was recording it on an iPhone or something. Um, and the people who were actually in the room, they did a straw poll after it was over. And Mandel was dead last. I mean, he had absolutely no support in that room whatsoever. Uh, And this was the organization Freedom Works, uh, the Ohio branch of Freedom Works. A conservative conservative group. Yes, very conservative group. And in the straw poll, uh, Vance ran away with it. I mean, he was clearly the favorite of that group that was in the room when this happened. You know, in in Cleveland, uh, the next night, there was a a televised debate. That was on Monday, Uh, right? Yes, on Monday night, and that was seen statewide on six different uh, uh, Nexstar-owned stations. And 
that was a topic of that that dust up at the Freedom Works line was a topic of discussion because the moderator of the Fox Eight uh, debate in Cleveland started out by saying, "I want." Mr. Gibbons, I want Mr. Mandel to explain what happened. And they had to stand there and do that. And then... Did either one back down? No. Uh, you know, uh, Mandel said, no, I'm a Marine, I'm a fighter, I have a steel a spine of steel. Uh, Was either one put in timeout? No, not, not in this one, no. Uh, you know, the only thing that Gibbons said was, said, look, I was talking about private sector work. I wasn't talking about militaries. I have a son who's a Navy pilot, so I'm not going to, you know, denigrate uh, military service, but the guy doesn't have any uh, experience in the private sector, and that's what Gibbons has been running on. Almost every story I've read, at least in the national media, but, but also in Ohio media, talks about how the candidates are going all out to secure Donald Trump's endorsement there were rumors early that he was leaning towards Timken, but but you know he's not the kind of guy who likes to back a candidate who's trailing in the polls. What do you th- what do you think is going to happen? You know, I don't know because I don't know if he's actually going to do anything in this race. Uh, I'm getting the impression that he's not very thrilled with any of these people uh, at the at the Cleveland debate, the televised debate. Uh, the moderator asked all five candidates, okay, do you believe that Donald Trump should give up on this idea that the election was stolen from him and move on? If you do, raise your hand. And of the five candidates who were on the stage, only Matt Dolan raised his hand and said, clearly, no, this this has got to stop. The rest of them, you know, were, were buying into this uh, mythology about uh, the, the election being stolen. Well, I, I, put toge- I put together a whole bunch of uh, sound bites of candidates trying to link themselves to Trump. Uh, so, uh, so here's Timken. We can't let America become a socialist country. I'm running for the United States Senate to stand up for you. Just like when I stood next to President Trump and supported his America First agenda that created jobs and brought manufacturing back to our shores. As your senator, I will advance the Trump agenda without fear or hesitation, fighting for American manufacturing and Ohio workers defending the unborn in our Second Amendment, standing up for law enforcement and stronger borders. Here's Josh Mandel. Now, there's a lot of these squishy rhino Republicans who say, hey, it's time to move on from 2020. Let me tell you something, ladies and gents. We can't move on to 2022 until we fully investigate all of the Democrat cheating from 2020. The time for civility is over. The time for bipartisanship is over. Now is the time for fighters. Here's Mike Gibbons. President Trump made America safer, stronger, and more prosperous than ever before. I'm Mike Gibbons, and I approve this message because President Trump fought for you. I'll do the same. And here's Vance, who has a lot of explaining to do about his past anti-Trump actions, but here he is. Sure. Well, like like a lot of 
people, I, I criticized Trump back in 2016, and I'd ask folks not to judge me by based on what I, I said in 2016, because I've been very open about the fact that I, I did say those critical things, and uh, I regret them, and I regret being wrong about the guy. I think that he was a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people, and I think he took a lot of flack. And as you probably appreciate, Alicia, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of flack myself over the last few years for standing up for the president's voters, but also standing up for the agenda. And I think that's the most important thing is, is not what you said five years ago, but whether you're willing to stand up and take, take the heat and take the hits for actually defending the interests of the American people, because that's what, what this business of politics should be all about. Howard, I mean, whatever happens, you know that Donald Trump needs to be loved and he's getting a lot of love from these candidates. He is getting a lot of love from these candidates, but he's also uh, reportedly, you know, that he thinks uh, Mandel is weird, he thinks Gibbons is boring, he thinks, you know, that, as you pointed out, Jane Timken doesn't have any traction in the polls. Uh, I don't know what he thinks about Vance, but in Ohio, he seemed to be, the only thing he's, Donald Trump seemed to be interested in this year so far was Anthony Gonzalez, the congressman from Northeast Ohio who voted to impeach him, and he wanted to make sure that Anthony Gonzalez was gone. And the pressure on Gonzalez was so great that he dropped out of his reelection campaign, and Trump chalked up another win. And that's what he's really talked about uh, in Ohio. Not the Senate race, not the governor's race, not anything except Anthony Gonzalez. Well, then forget Trump for a second. Uh, besides who loves Trump the most, what issues are there that's separating the candidates? You know, Ken, there's not much that separates them, uh, basically, because they're, they're all saying whatever Trump said. You know, except it, Dolan. Except Dolan. Except Dolan, right. Now, Dolan, you know, and the, for his part, he'd rather talk about Joe Biden. He wants to talk about Joe Biden and then the, the administration and what he sees as, as their failures. And he doesn't talk about Trump at all, you know, unless he's specifically asked uh, a question about Trump. But he does talk uh, about Biden and the harm that he believes that the Biden administration has done to the economy in Ohio and uh, in foreign relations and uh, oil production, all of those kind of issues. Uh, everybody else in this race, I mean everybody else in this race, it, it, they just trump Trump whatever the Trump line is. And Vance got into some controversy, I guess, when he had said had said some uh, surprising remarks about Ukraine. Yes, uh, he went on a podcast with with Steve Bannon of all people, and said very plainly after right after the invasion that uh, he said, "I got to tell you," he said, "I really don't care." about Ukraine. It, it doesn't mean anything to him. He has other priorities. He said that Ukraine is not in the U.S.'s vital interest. And what he wants to talk about instead, he says, we, we need to be talking about our, our southern border. And, of course, he wants to complete Donald Trump's wall. You know, he was asked about this Monday night in the Cleveland debate. And he didn't back off a lot. He just basically said, look, uh, I said, yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing that's happening in Ukraine, and it's serious, and we should help them in whatever way we can without starting World War III. 
But then he went right straight back to border issues. Right, he cared more more about the border in the U.S. rather than the border in, between Ukraine and Russia, right? Exactly. Was there any advantage that uh, Timken got in getting the endorsement from Rob Portman? If, if you believe the polling that's out there and that uh, Emerson College poll dealt with this question, uh, not much of an advantage. Uh, there were, I believe it was 38% of the Republican uh, likely voters who responded in this poll said that, uh, that Portman's endorsement of Tim could, would make them less likely to uh, support her candidacy. It's a very strange situation because she's playing, you know, she's going out and campaigning with Portman around the state. He's still popular in, in Ohio. But then she's, she's kind of bouncing back and forth between the Portman world and the Trump world. And it's a very delicate balance for her. Uh, I don't know that it's, she's doing it very effectively on either side. Howard Wilkinson is a senior political analyst at WVXU in Cincinnati. Before that, he spent 30 years covering politics at the Cincinnati Enquirer. Howard, as always, it's great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you. We are the robots. We are the robots. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Come